0: Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today, on the wings of Alliance for Natural Health USA, we will be traveling to North Carolina to visit with Dr. David Quigg. David received his BS and MS degrees in human nutrition from Virginia Tech and a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from the University of Illinois. After a five-year stint as a research associate studying lipid biochemistry and cardiovascular disease at Cornell University, he became a senior cardiovascular pharmacologist for seven years. For the past 24 years, David has been the Vice President of Scientific Support for Doctors Data, Inc. He has focused on toxic elements, applied biochemistry of endogenous detoxification, Methylation and amino acid metabolism and the influence of the gastrointestinal microbiota on health. I'd like to welcome Dr. David Quigg. Well, welcome, David, to the Art and Soul of Healing.
1: Thank you, Dr. Dresk.
0: Yes, and you can please call me Jeannie. All right. <laughs> so you've known me too long otherwise. <laughs> Well, I have known you for quite some time, but, you know, I never really knew how you got interested in laboratory medicine. So, you know, I know your path started in human nutrition, and then you did a gig in primary research in lipid biochemistry at Cornell. How did you make this switch?
1: Yeah, well... um... After my, after my stint with research in academia, I actually worked as a cardiovascular pharmacologist with a pharmaceutical company for seven years. So I've always been hands-on with lab work, but it just got to a point where I never wanted to see another pipette <laughs> or beaker again. It's just one of those things after you know 30-some years, you just, you just want to sit back and read more and, and just do more of the basic basic research. And so this opportunity came along where I could apply all those experiences um, with a passion that I have, and that's um, teaching those who teach and deal with patients.
0: Oh, that's great. So when I, I'd like to focus primarily on toxicity and the toxic patient, because I know I've heard you speak around this topic before. But when I cared for toxic patients, we like to start with a thorough history, including toxic and exposure questionnaire. Then we did an extensive nutritional biochemistry assessment. So tell tell us about the laboratory assessment of nutritional status. I know that's on the uh, menu options for your laboratory.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it really goes back to my days in the past at ACAM where, you know, it was chelation, chelation, chelation and not supporting the body's endogenous upregulatable detoxification processes, which are fundamental to any detoxification. So we're talking about just basic nutritional status with some specialties. Uh, Is your protein intake adequate? Are you getting a full complement of amino acids? So things like uh, plasma, urine, amino acid analysis, and you've got methylation, um, plasma methylation profile, because you just don't go very far without transulfuration. Um, creating uh, cysteine, glutathione, and all those wonderful basic. And then you have the uh, not-so-exciting elements, the essential nutritional elements, um, which... I say not exciting, but without them, these wonderful enzyme systems just don't work. They're Mm -hmm. the spark plugs that drive all your antioxidant enzymes, uh, everything in your body. So just the very basic amino acids, methylation, um, and essential elements.
0: Mm -hmm. I believe you call this applied biochemistry of endogenous detoxification. Is that correct or do you have another explanation for that? Yes,
1: absolutely. Uh-huh. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, you know the methylation, the methyl cycle. I think gets overlooked a lot. Uh, how in the lab that you represent, and I'll, I'll say, you know, it's doctor's data, and I've had. Um, a great relationship with doctors data over the years. I don't have any financial support with doctors data, but um, I know they're a very uh, wonderful and trustworthy lab uh, among other labs out there. So uh, can you tell us about what parts of the nutritional assessment you use to look at methylation?
1: Um, In large part, it's, Basically, it's everything, but it's basically amino acid metabolism. You're talking about getting from methionine uh, down to homocysteine, branching out to other essential amino acids, and then very importantly, remethylating homocysteine back to methionine. Um, But in there, you have, you know, obligatory cofactors like magnesium. So in large part, it is uh, amino acid metabolism. And then on top of that, you have all these epigenetic factors like TNF alpha, inflammation, oxidative stress uh, that can impair those enzyme functions. So everything gets pulled into the picture. Uh.
0: And then often before launching into a rigorous detoxification program, we always made sure the GI tract was functioning properly. And I I think this is a major arm of detoxification. Tell us about the testing of the gut.
1: Yeah, the the testing of the gastrointestinal microbiota and their metabolism has really, really advanced. I Mm -hmm. mean, you, you can't study any disease or anything without looking at it anymore. I mean, it's, you know, we always used to say, the liver is the powerhouse, does everything in the body. Well, it starts in the gut. I mean, (laughs) there's there's detoxification and toxification intensification that goes on in the gut before things are even put absorbed into it systemically. Um, So taking care of the gut has such a huge influence on inflammation um oxidative stress. Uh it affects things like the adipical cytokines, which you know these are little hormones that go around and affect all these systemic sites as well. So remotely from the gut, it, it basically starts there.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It's the center of the universe. I did a little research project, like a little clinical research project when I first started at KU. And I wanted to include the microbiota in in the evaluation, and uh, in fact, we use doctor's data in this study. But um, you know, the GI doctor that I was working with kept making fun of me because I kept talking about the microbiota. You know, and that was you know uh, twenty years ago now, <laughs> and they're all now. Um, that's that's a major focus for even the GI doctors now.
1: It is. And and the funny thing there, though, is you you see these wonderful publications in these top shelf gastrointestinal journals and but they are still fixated on here's the seven or eight pathogenic bacteria that we PCR test for. Mm -hmm. You don't have those. So there's nothing wrong with you. But (laughs) as you and I know, it goes so much further than that on the commensals, the beneficial bacteria simple simple lacking in the beneficial bacteria, it can elicit symptoms that are similar to the true pathogenic bacteria. It's amazing.
0: It is amazing. Can you talk a little bit about how this test is run, collected and run?
1: Yes, it's um, on the patient side, it's not a whole lot of fun to collect stool. Um, but then and mix it up and portion it into containers. But there are different uh, vials that have to be handled, preserved in certain ways. Um, There are vials that go directly to the uh, molecular PCR analysis to really canvas what's there, what's not there. Um, There's also PCR um, directly for those uh, pathogenic bacteria, yeast, uh, even viruses now, parasites. Um, and then there's important stool chemistries that tell us what is going on. What's the net metabolic effect going on from that gut? Because yes, we can identify is, is this bacteria there or not there? Is this one there or not there? But most importantly, one end of the story is that what are they doing? Are okay. they doing what they're supposed to do? Um, and so those chemistries, Uh, really tell us about the metabolism of those, um, uh, which we hope to be abundant and diverse microbiota. Mm
0: -hmm. And then what do you, what does the lab recommend for healing?
1: Well, as you know, a a diagnostic lab, the primary responsibility is accurate and reliable results. We have never gone real heavy on um, telling what, wise doctors like yourself should be doing um, so uh we have very very comprehensive commentaries when things are out of mm. lot out of whack the computer helpful. It. Uh-huh.
0: um
1: but beyond that um you know our it's it's beyond our responsibility to tell you what to do and mm-hmm. and so importantly i talk to docs all week long and, I, and it's, sometimes it's like pulling teeth. I have to keep asking questions about the patient because, as I've said for the last 24 years, we're treating a patient, not the lab results. So Absolutely. while those lab results are really, really important, we need to know the whole picture. Like you said, the history taking, all the background. So I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to say, oh, man, you should do this. You should mm-hmm. do that. But I don't know deadly about your patient. Yeah.
0: And there's a lot of physicians just now getting into this type of medicine and they do need to be guided. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a role for the lab and some level for that. And of course, the exposure history <laughs> leads us to metal toxicology. Well, or environmental toxicants. So let's mm-hmm. talk, start with the uh, toxic metals and essential elements testing.
1: Yeah, that's that's where Doctors Data got started back in 1972. I think we were the first lab in the world to start doing hair analysis. It was mm. really an interesting uh, evolution for us. Then we got much more into uh, looking at different biological matrices for uh, exposure. So you have hair. You have an unprovoked urine sample. Uh, You have blood, which tells you about ongoing or recent exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, But nowadays, docs are asking a lot more. Well, that's fine, but we know blood lead only has a half-life of 27 days. So Mm -hmm. what if it was an acute exposure high and it's two months later, what do I do now? Well, people get into other ways of trying to estimate net retention. And that's where the urine elements come in. Um, Mm And one of the most common questions I get from newer people, newer docs is, well, which test is better, the hair, the urine, the blood? Well, I ask, what do you want to know? Because they all have a specific purpose. They all have limitations. Um, And so we have to, again, think about what you're really asking
0: and you mentioned the uh, pre and post challenge urine testing. I, you know, I think that's really important. Could you comment on that? I I know both are important, and maybe you need to highlight that.
1: Yes, um, the pre. What I recommend for a pre is just a, a nice concentrated first morning urine void, and that tells you a uh, very recent or ongoing exposure, which you need to know. What's the first rule of toxicology? eliminate, ameliorate the exposure. So first and foremost, we need to have the exposure index. And then the provocation, which provides an estimate of Mm -hmm. net retention. And I really stress estimate because Mm -hmm. it's outside of uh, CAM medicine. It's very frowned upon, it's called Mm -hmm. invalid, but short of doing biopsies all over the body, including the brain, There's no other way to get an inkling of what has accumulated in the body over time that blood lead, for example, isn't going to tell you. Mm -hmm. And so I I emphasize that the provocation test um, is used in conjunction with the presentation of the patient, the history, uh, the symptoms are so important, um, and you can get an, an estimate how much say lead retention is in this individual compared to most individuals but even there your clinical skills are so important because one person can be adversely affected by a much lower level of lead retention than another another individual who might have a greater total toxicant load like different um, toxic chemicals um, from hobbies and occupations. So, you know, I stress that the provocation test has been challenged, no mm-hmm. pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> sure, it's the best we have, mm-hmm. it's the best we can do.
0: Absolutely. And then, of course, everyone's debating. I'm sure you get this question that you probably cannot and will not answer is, you know, what's the best chelator to, to give a challenge urine test? And I talked about that in uh, an earlier podcast I did. You know, there's IV, there's oral, it's all operator dependent. And I think that doctor is going to have to establish their own internal set of metrics rather than depending on like the CDC exposure metrics, for example, because it's not valid, as you said.
1: Right. And and so important is really understanding the pharmacology of the three primary different agents that are available Um, because, it you know, some have a much greater affinity for uh, some metals and are terrible at other metals. Mm -hmm. And that's why, again, it really helps to have that exposure history so you can have an idea. Um, Hey, you know, this person used to work with a lot of arsenic. Mm -hmm. Um, with spraying uh, the very precious grapes and the expensive wines. And so maybe we should use uh, a dithiol agent that really is much better for arsenic. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's a lot to it.
0: Yeah, there is. You really have to have someone who's trained in it and understand it. It's just not something somebody can take a weekend course and think that they know how to do it.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I was invited to speak at a cardiology meeting and they wanted me to talk about de- uh, chelation and all I could do was give theory and different agents and so on and so forth. But they really wanted me to teach them in one lecture, how to do chelation
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> kind of Oops. mad at me that I didn't do it, but you know, not going to do it. So yeah, yeah well,
1: right, right at that point, I would have said, okay, well, first we have to do this course on bolstering and supporting endogenous detoxification, because if you're not helping the body do what it does best, there's no point putting a chelator in somebody.
0: I started with that actually. (laughs) And they said, Oh, well, you didn't need to cover that. It was covered by somebody else, but it wasn't. (laughs) So yeah, Yeah. it's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, what about the other minerals and elements? Uh, Tell us why that's important to follow as well.
1: Two, two very important reasons. One is, as I mentioned, they, they have very, very critical obligatory cofactor functions. I mean, you can have all the enzyme expressed that you want, and if you don't have the magnesium, if you don't have the zinc or the selenium, it's not going to work. It's not going to work very well at all. So because of the essential nature of those, we need to know what the status is and we need to maximize that nutritional status. And then the second side of it is a lot of the essential elements uh, can be toxic if absorbed, assimilated in some way in excess. Um, Take manganese, we absolutely need it for mitochondrial superoxide dismutase, a very important antioxidant enzyme. But excessive manganese retention leads to manganism, which is described in the allopathic medical literature as Parkinson's-like disease. Mm -hmm. Um, We know this excess manganese accumulates in very specific parts of the brain, causes oxidation of catecholamines, and it's amazing. You can almost not distinguish the symptoms between Parkinson's and Parkinson's-like manganism. Hmm. It's amazing. So too much of a good thing, not such a good thing.
0: Yeah, that's so critical. Thank you for bringing that up. And how often do you recommend checking during a detox program for like repeating the heavy metal screen and the elements and mineral screen?
1: Uh, I think it's very important to monitor uh, responsibly the efficacy of your detoxification, whether it's chelation or nutritional, especially if it's pharmaceutical chelation, because we don't want anybody on any drug any longer than they need to be. So we typically would say about every 10 weeks uh, to monitor the progress and importantly, um, note any symptom changes. During that time Mm -hmm. for the nutritional elements, um, clearly less frequently. Um, And a key thing there is you do your initial assessment um, and if it's really bad, you take the time to get it right Mm -hmm. the best you can. Before you even start, so that monitoring is not such a big deal, and then again, knowing the pharmacology, knowing that EDTA will suck the zinc out of people, keep up on that zinc during the program. So the monitoring of the essentials is, I think, less critical during detoxification. If and it's a big if, if you start out with the best status than you can possibly get, which in some cases may mean we kind of really delay this because we're not going to get good nutritional status in this patient because their gut's such a mess. They're not mm-hmm. absorbing. It. Um, so yeah, we have to start with the very, very basics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We used to call that the gateway. You have to walk through the gateway before you could go to detox. (laughs)
1: So,
0: yeah. And the environmental chemicals, you mentioned those. They're very important. How do you recommend testing in terms of blood and urine for, you know, the organic chemicals.
1: Yeah, that's that's tough. There, there's a test that we have offered uh, since the early 80s, and it's just a general hepatic detoxification where it just looks at generically effects of uh, chemicals on phase one. Uh, and then also on phase two. And that's a simple first morning urine void. It doesn't tell you what the chemical entity might be that's revving up phase one or compromising phase two, but it lets you know that something's going on. And then with your history, occupation, hobbies, and all that, you can start to figure things out. But the, the reason I say that is because I've known too many people that have gone to some elaborate expensive chemical panel and found nothing because these things are elusive. You've got a lot of things that are tucked away. They're very hydrophobic. They're tucked away in fat. And I remember one time asking Dr. Lasseter, I'm sure you remember Dr. Mm -hmm. Lasseter at a conference. We were on a a panel together and I suggested that, hey, why not prepare people and have them fast for 24 hours so that we're mobilizing some Mm. fat. See if we can bring these things out into the blood or into the urine, but that's the bottom line is, it's a little bit evasive, um, and it's kind of hit or miss. Another thing I, I thought of, well, you know, we always hear about sauna mobilizing stuff and help them mobilize from fat. What about sauna before that? But if you're gonna do that, and one of the reservations would be, well, you have to really have them loaded up with glutathione or something before you Absolutely. do it, which is fine um, if that's what it takes. So it's not quite as straightforward,
0: mm-hmm. the direct it's not. testing. Mm-hmm. And of course, the gold standard is fat biopsy, but I don't think anybody's <laughs> doing
1: that. No, no.
0: It would be complicated. And then where do you do the fat biopsy? So, well,
1: exactly, and yeah. you get into you get into just the um, sub Q fat versus the visceral fat, uh, which is so much more metabolically active. So it's it's tough.
0: It it's is tough. tough. So hepatic function is part of the testing regimen, as you said. Can you tell us, or can tell the listeners, why the liver is so important?
1: Uh because so many things are massively taken up by the liver on first pass. So coming in, especially orally, is going to the liver first. Um, and then you have so many critical and such a huge capacity for so many physiological processes at the liver. Um, it's, you know, right there in line with the gut, Um so, yeah, we've got to have the liver working. And general liver tests, you know, your standard um, liver panel or, you know, your your CBC and all that good stuff is, is a good place to start, but it kind of leaves you yearning for more information.
0: What's, what's in the doctor's data hepatic function test?
1: Um, well, I, I'd say it's more the uh, hepatic detoxification test, and that's the one where we're looking at the D-glucaric acid in a first morning urine void. And when that is concomitantly upregulated, turned on that process and levels in the urine, when the cytochrome P450s phase one are turned on by assault to the liver. The liver is great. And to a point it can adapt, it can upregulate, say we're under attack, we need more. We need more activity from the cytochrome P450s. So there's that phase, and then the second part is okay. How well is phase two, the conjugation, say to glutathione, uh, keeping up with that extra act of phase one? And if the and if the um, uh, the mercapturic acids in that first morning urine void are low, the um, the deglucaric acid is high. You have this disconnect between phase one putting out. More toxic toxins, more soluble toxins, and phase two conjugation not being there. So that's that's a very simple test and very very helpful, um, just from that angle.
0: Mm-hmm. And again, I have this similar question about how how often should we follow hepatic function during detoxification?
1: Um. Again, I, I have always said, you know, even been in the lab business for 24 years, the, the symptoms and the patient are going to, to be your best dipstick, if you will, <laughs> not that they're dipsticks. Um, but, and people don't like to pay a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Pay for testing, not that it costs a lot. They don't always appreciate how important it is. Sometimes people think, well, I got tested once, I don't have to be tested again. But it is important. Um, And the hepatic detox test is one where you can see results rather quickly. If you're on track and doing the appropriate nutritional support avoiding the toxic exposure, you're gonna see that uh, those hepatic detox markers really come around quickly. Mm -hmm. And a simple way to do that, really get that going for the phase two, is with something like liposomal glutathione. Um, It's a delivery system like every other form for the rate limiting amino acid cysteine, um, but it's a great jumpstart.
0: Yeah, it's very helpful to use that And of course, with uh, toxicants, there's systemic effects. And these are well known and supported by the toxicology research. Uh, The biggest one I think might be, well, the most research has been around endocrine disruptors. Mm -hmm. So how often have you seen in the lab analysis, the hormone problems, even in the young patients?
1: Um, I don't see a whole lot of that. My colleagues um, out on the West Coast, um, former Labrix Laboratory, um, handle all the clinical on that. Um, but I know they are very, very busy, and it's a lot younger and younger patients than we used to see.
0: Oh, it's so disturbing. And this infertility epidemic is frightening. Yeah. And then how about cardiometabolic injury?
1: Oh, cardiometabolic syndrome is, is probably my favorite topic. You know, Mm -hmm. I I did my graduate work and my postdoc and my pharmaceutical, all in lipid biochemistry. And the biomarkers have gotten so much more highly specific and predictable. You know, it used to be LDL and now we've got (laughs) oxidized LDL, small, dense LDL, LP little a, um, and tied in with that, and especially now um, uh, with forced inactivity and excessive pleasure eating, mm. we have so much cardiometabolic syndrome coming f- ahead. It's, it's really scaring me. I'm on a campaign right now to, to increase awareness about that. And just looking at these early markers, the disruption in the primary uh, adipocytokines, um, adiponectin, and leptin, Um, and looking at markers of hyperglycemic episodes, we can look at hemoglobin A1c, which tells us average glucose over two to three months, but much more specifically and highly predictable for cardiovascular events is these postprandial hyperglycemic excursions where we're exceeding 180 milligram per deciliter And so, looking at something like um, um, 1,5 dehydroglucotol, a glycomark, um, that tells you about uh, insulin insufficiency, hyperglycemia over the past two weeks. So, coupled with hemoglobin A1C, really gives you a lot to work with and really tightening up regulation and control.
0: Is that a, a postprandial uh, draw, or is it a fasting draw?
1: It's a, it's a fasting draw, and from two mils of serum, you'd be amazed at the information you can get. I mean, that anhydro, anhydroglucatol, I, I might have said dehydro, um, like I said, it's telling you what happened in the past two weeks Um, And I I see some of the chain labs now offering um, the glycomark combined with hemoglobin A1C to just get a more complete picture. So so as far as cardiometabolic syndrome, things have really, really come a long way.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about with heavy metals? I mean, that's you've been in this field for a long time with the heavy metals and the cardiometabolic injury
1: yeah it's i mean you know the classic we think about it was published in all the main journals was oh yes arsenic is related to diabetes well you think back on lead and you go do a literature search on cardiovascular or, or um arterial dysfunction you will be reading for weeks and weeks and weeks basic science to so many different angles that the lead uh, affects, um, arterial function, uh, endothelial cell function, cardiovascular inflammation, inflammation. I, you name it. It's it's just amazing. Um, mm-hmm. I was at a major conference. It was a whole weekend conference on heart disease one time, and it just blew my mind. There was not a single person who mentioned lead. Mm. Um so I was doing a, a lunch lecture, and so I addressed that <laughs> during my lunch lecture. Yeah. Uh, it's just amazing.
0: That, it's almost mm-hmm. a no-brainer. Yeah. So it, with the panels that you see during the de- metal detoxification, have you seen improvement? Do they report improvement in the patients to you?
1: With respect to? Chelation. Uh, chelation but improvements in the with,
0: cardiometabolic syndrome oh, the
1: cardiometabolic uh, I'd say not so much in cardiometabolic uh, most people there's so many other uh, points of intervention with you know major ugly a cardiometabolic panel that so much can be fixed with Lifestyle change, diet, um, getting rid of the trans fatty acids, mm-hmm. getting more of the omega-3s, more of the um, uh, exercise, things like niacin uh, and even berberine. But we see so much impact from those things that i'd have to say i don't see uh many reports where someone says hey i got the lead out and everything normalized mm-hmm. so yeah.
0: actually i've had a patient that did a full course of chelation therapy and still had cardiometabolic syndrome
1: exactly. and he, then he
0: subsequently <laughs> came to me and i cleaned him up and he resolved
1: right and so right. yeah it was lifestyle and it probably should have done it in reverse order, right? Eh?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> but he didn't come to me first.
1: <laughs> so, yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. I, you know, I'm worried now with this trial to assess chelation therapy, the TAC trial, that it's going to be pushing people to chelation before this lifestyle and diet and everything intervention.
1: Yeah, I think that's where the, you know, the weight really falls on uh, the aware, comprehensive clinician is to say, that's fine. Uh, Yep, that's wonderful data, especially about the diabetics. But we have to start here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. uh, Yeah, absolutely. Well, recently you returned to North Carolina. Well, I guess three years ago. Are you getting some outdoor activities in? <laughs> what are you doing for fun?
1: I absolutely that was a big reason for coming back here was uh, windsurfing is my greatest passion. Oh, I didn't uh, know that about wise. you. And uh been doing it for about 40 years now and it was so much better windsurfing here in North Carolina and Cape Hatteras. And
0: yeah. Oh, so you're over on the east side of the yes, state. Sir. Oh, yes. that's great! Uh, so that's lifted your spirits during this year, it right, sounds like.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yes.
0: that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and and opening our eyes up about the laboratory angle.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, Genie, and let's not uh, be so long between visits.
0: A special thank you to Dr. David Quigg for sharing his perspective on the importance of laboratory medicine in detoxification. And a special shout out to Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing in the gap for our health freedoms and making these types of therapies available for all of us. Go to AllianceForNaturalHealthUSA.org and become a member today.